I would invite you to kneel with me as we begin with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, today we have sung, we've prayed, we've asked that you would revive us again. And Lord, we think of those times when your spirit has moved in the past, when you've spoken through your word and you've moved upon hearts and there's been a revival, a stirring in the hearts of your people. And today we pray that that might be accomplished again here and now and in us. We ask for this not because we're worthy, but we ask because of Jesus. Because he lived and he died and he now intercedes for us. And he invites us to come boldly to ask for grace to help in time of need. We confess our need of that grace. We claim that promise in his name. Amen. Have any of you ever heard of May 21, 2011? May 21, it was predicted that there would be at 6 o'clock in each respective time zone a massive earthquake that would herald the end of the world. And um, as you know, as we know sitting here today, that earthquake never happened. But um, I've had interest, I've had great interest in sort of following these predictions and following these prophecies and even following what has been said after the passing of this time. It's a particular interest to us, isn't it? Because as Seventh-day Adventists, we have been preachers, teachers of the soon coming of Christ. And here is a gentleman named Harold Camping who has the family radio network, a network that's worth about $100 million around the world. And he has a worldwide audience and he's giving this message that Jesus would come in, in May 21, 2011. Websites um, such as wecanknow.com proclaimed the same message. Now he had he had some followers. He had some, some who were believing that Jesus was going to come on October 21. The question is, what, is, what are these people saying now? What are, they, what are they understanding actually took place on May 21, and how can they, can they explain why the earthquakes didn't happen? Well, I, I took some time to read what uh, Mr. Camping teaches about what actually took place, and this is what I found. He has decided that the earthquake, which was to take place at 6 o'clock and sweep across the world in each time zone at that hour, was actually symbolic of an earthquake with earth being symbol of people. You see, because in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says, The Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground. You see, so earth is a symbol of people. An earthquake would be a shaking of people. So it was the excitement and the interest and the enthusiasm that pervaded those who heard his message. That was the earthquake that swept across the world. Very interesting theory, isn't it? Very interesting. Now, as he, as he looks forward to the next five months, he says the world is actually going to end not now on May 21, but October 21, which gets even more uncomfortable for me as a Seventh-day Adventist. Because it's very close to October 22, isn't it? Only one day apart. And I can, I, can just, I can just hear all of the pundits and the critics comparing us with 
Mr. Camping. He also believes that those who were saved before May 21 are going to be saved and no one else. Basically a closed door type of theory. Basically saying that the, the message of Revelation chapter 22, that um, let him that is filthy be filthy still, and him that is righteous be righteous still, that is the message that applies to the world now and probation is closed. Only those who are saved in May 21 are going to be saved when the world actually ends in October 21. It's interesting though, um, if you come to the end of his, uh, his uh, description here, his, his explanation, he says, you should still pray though, because you never know the goodness of uh, who, who, who is going to be saved is simply dependent on the grace of God. And so this is the problem that I see. Well, you see the problem too, huh? I'll get my buttons figured out here. The problem is that there's an, the, there seems to be an unavoidable comparison between William Miller and Harold Camping. And um, this has puzzled me. This has sort of troubled me, I should say, as I've, I've, I've heard different people comparing in the news and the media. I've heard them comparing the great disappointment of October 22, 1844, and the whole Millerite experience and out of which Adventism arose, and this false teacher of prophecy, Harold Camping. And so I thought that this morning we would take a few moments to consider the story of William Miller and compare and contrast uh, some of the differences between he William Miller and Harold Camping. Would you be interested in that? I'm sure there are many we could talk about. We're going to be looking at only three of them this morning. But you know the story of William Miller. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the story of William Miller. But basically, William Miller was a deist turned Christian. As he examined the scriptures without commentaries, you remember he set aside his commentaries. He took only his Bible and a Strong's Concordance. And he determined he would study, beginning at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and he would study the Bible no faster than he could understand understand it verse by verse by verse. And as he studied the Bible, he found that it was a coherent, cohesive whole. Even though it was many different books by many different authors, he found there was a symmetry and an agreement within the scriptures that, that, that simply amazed him. And William Miller, the skeptic that he had been, became a believer in Christ. There's a, there's a long story of, of how that took place. It's very interesting. Um, he, William Miller was actually not even really yet a believer yet, but uh, he was asked to preach the sermons. Well, what happened is there were people who would come to his church. He would, he would attend the church that his family attended, and, and um, people would come to his church, and the elders who read the sermons didn't know how to read very well. They were sort of uneducated farmers, and he was a pretty well-educated farmer, you know? And so he, would, he finally said, you know, I wish I could just read those sermons. Now, he wasn't really a believer in what he was reading, but he was given the opportunity of reading those sermons. And the Holy Spirit began working on his heart. And um, eventually, his, he was touched by the Spirit. He became a believer. So William Miller began studying the Bible. And as he studied the Bible, from Genesis onward, he came to the books of prophecy, particularly, first, of course, the book of Daniel. And as he studied Daniel, he found that the symbols found in Daniel could be explained within the Bible itself. You, didn't need a, you don't need a commentary to understand those symbols. Using just a concordance, he could find clearly from the Bible what these symbols meant. You know, Daniel is a bit like a... Daniel's a bit like the kindergarten of apocalyptic prophecy. There are many people who try to read the book of Revelation without having an accurate understanding of Daniel. And that's sort of like beginning in calculus without taking, you know, 
elementary mathematics. It doesn't work very well. You, you're just guessing. You're just shooting in the dark. And um, the way Daniel works, Daniel begins with the vision and the interpretation, right? Isn't that the way Daniel 2 is and the way Daniel 7 is? And the more you progress in Daniel and Revelation, the less, the less explanation you have along the way. Why? Because God is simply trying to tell us in those early chapters, these are the principles of interpretation. You look at the vision, you look at the interpretation, you say, oh, that's what that means. That's how we interpret symbolic prophecy. And so that's the primer, if you please, for apocalyptic prophecy, the book of Daniel. So Daniel was, was uh, William Miller's study, and as he studied it, he began to understand it. And he saw those parallels between Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. He learned the repeat and enlarge principle, the fact that each succeeding vision covers the, uh, a similar territory as the preceding one. So that Daniel chapter 2 begins back here in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, right? And it continues all the way down to the close of time. That's very clear from Daniel chapter 2 and the explanation, right? Daniel chapter 7, he finds the same thing. Instead of metals, it's now beasts or animals. And it begins back in the time of the prophet and it extends all the way down to the second coming. And, uh, but it begins to give more information where? Where is more information found in each succeeding prophecy? Towards the time of the end, right? That's the repeat and enlarge. It's sort of like if you have a map and you're looking at a, an atlas of the United States and you want to get to a certain position, you need to start zooming in, right, on that final position to be able to find your way to that destination. And each prophecy has an inset, as it were, that's zoomed in on the time of the end. And so we can see more and more details as each vision is given to us, more and more details of those prophecies. And Daniel, uh, uh, William Miller contrasted and compared Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and when he got to Daniel chapter 8, he found, wait a minute, Daniel 2 tells us those four empires and the divided empire and, and all the way down to the second coming. And Daniel chapter 7 adds some amazing details about a judgment, right, at the time of the end. That wasn't in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 7, after the dividing of the empire, there's going to be this time of judgment that appears before the second coming. And Daniel chapter 8, if you just parallel them, just put them next to, next to each other, those extra details we find in Daniel chapter 8, that time prophecy, it must be speaking of the judgment too. It's very clear to, to William Miller. This is, what, this is what he's talking about. And as he studied Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, he realized these were prophecies that fit together. Daniel 9 was a continuation of an explanation of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8, the, the prophet faints as the, uh, as just as the, the angel begins to describe and explain the interpretation of the time prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, he comes back and the same terminology is used. He begins by explaining the time right where he left off in Daniel chapter 8. And William Miller is studying all these things and he becomes convicted. He becomes convinced that he must tell the world. He must tell the world. And in fact, the, the text of Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 8 and 9 kept ringing in his ears. He knew, he believed the world was going to be ending in the near future. And he knew that he had a responsibility to tell the world. The prophet Ezekiel writes in verse 8 and 9, or actually God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, when, you, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If you do not speak to warn the wicked of his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if, the, if you warn the wicked of, the, of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, 
He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. And so here you have the conviction settling upon William Miller that he must tell the world. He must tell the world that Jesus is coming soon. That's what he believed the cleansing of the sanctuary to be. Now, when we think about William Miller, and that's just a brief synopsis, you could say, of William Miller's experience. If we're to think about the differences of, of, um, of, uh, between William Miller and Harold Camping, I want to just point out this morning three differences. And um, first of all, Camping was virtually alone in his understandings with few, if any, clergy or scholars joining him in his views. Now, I'm not trying to say that the majority is always right. But what I am going to propose to you this morning is that God doesn't bring significant messages to just one man. He brings it to the body as a whole. He brings it to more than just a few scattered individuals. He brings it to people who are searching and looking for truth in a, in a wider fashion than I have seen um, the, this movement of May 21 exhibit. If we compare Harold Camping with William Miller, there is no comparison on this point. William Miller was simply joining a chorus of voices because he was not the only one, nor was he really the first one to make similar uh, interpretations of the prophecies of Daniel. There were many other on both sides of the Atlantic that were writing similar things at the same time, unknown to each other. In fact, I, I should have added these uh, slides into this presentation, but I took, I took from the prophetic faith of our fathers as a chart of, of, of many of the current prophetic expositors contemporary of William Miller. And it's like it would fill this screen three times, just scrolling past. These were authors who wrote on the prophecies, nearly every one of them being a historicist. Nearly everyone, except for two or three exceptions. They were all studying the prophecies and coming to very similar conclusions as William Miller did. And William Miller was not out by himself. There were many clergy, thousands of clergy around the world who joined him after he began preaching. Some, of, some very distinguished clergy, some very well-educated clergy. And they saw the truth in what William Miller was saying. They saw the truth in what he was teaching and preaching. And even his critics, if you look at his most... If you look at his most uh, uh, vocal critics, for example, if you read in the Millerite Signs of the Times, the debates that went back and forth between Miller and his critics and some of the other Advent uh, Millerite uh, preachers and their critics, you'll notice, first of all, that the, the critics were not finding fault with the time prophecy of William Miller's understanding. Basically, Protestants were all historicists at the time. And the Protestant critics of William Miller were not finding fault with the time prophecy. 1843 and 1844 were not the main subject of their attacks on William Miller. They differed simply on what the sanctuary was. And the more common view among his critics was the sanctuary actually was not this earth being cleansed by fire, but the sanctuary was the literal sanctuary in Jerusalem, and it had to do with the whole Muslim and, and the Christian controversy. And they believed that the temple was going to be restored in Jerusalem after the Muslims were removed from the holy place. That's what they understood the sanctuary to be. Smith and Campbell and a couple of the other major critics that argued with William Miller on his interpretation of prophecy. The point being, the Protestant critics, virtually without exception, were not finding fault with 1843 or 1844, the 2300-day time prophecy. They were simply disagreeing with what the cleansing of the sanctuary meant. Very interesting, isn't it? And by the way, that would be um, the weakest point in William Miller's argument, wouldn't it? And um, we today 
um, as the decades have passed, certainly we recognize he had a misunderstanding of what the cleansing of the sanctuary was. But do you see the contrast between the May 21 movement and what took place there in uh, 1844? Do you see the contrast between a movement of basically one person and a few followers and a movement across Christianity that crossed denominational lines of clergy and believers who studied their Bible and came to very, very similar conclusions. Now, while we're on this point, while we're on this point, I, I, I want to just mention that um, it's very interesting if you study the history of those other denominations, those other Protestant denominations. After 1844, you begin to see a trajectory away from historicism and to two other schools of thought, futurism and preterism. The reason being, you either have to find out what did happen in 1844 and really become an Adventist, or you have to come up with an entirely different system of prophetic interpretation. You cannot just remain a historicist and dismiss 1844. Because 1844 is such a solid prophecy in the historicist framework of understanding. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Before I move on, though, I want to just make it very clear. I'm not trying to say here that because an idea is popular that it's right, or because an idea is unpopular that it's wrong. Is that clear? I'm not trying to say that. I am saying that God leads his people as a body, not just individuals. And I want to share this statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. I know it's small print, and hopefully you can, you can follow along as I read it. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 293. There are a thousand temptations in disguise prepared for those who have the light of truth. And the only safety for any of us is in receiving no new doctrine, no new interpretation of the Scriptures, without first submitting it to brethren of experience. Lay it before them in a humble, teachable spirit with earnest prayer. And if they see no light in it, yield to their judgment. For in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That is the principle that I'm trying to point out here. It's not that because there's a majority, they're right, and a minority, they're wrong. No. But that God is not going to just lead one person to see the light in a truth. And uh, I'm sure Brother Camping would say that, well, there are others who believed it. But it's very interesting, as I read the news reports and uh, read about this whole, this whole prophecy and prediction, one reporter went so far as to call up the headquarters of the family radio network and ask those who he could talk to what they thought about these predictions. And it was very interesting that after a little bit of chit-chat, those who answered the phone would actually begin opening up and saying, no, actually... Uh, we don't believe May 21 is going to happen. Most of the people here in the office don't believe May 21 is going to happen. According to some of the news reports I read, even those who were employed by Mr. Camping didn't actually believe that what he was saying was biblically, factually true. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Quite a contrast, wouldn't you say, between 1844 and the Millerite movement and... Uh, May 21, 2011. It's really very unfair to begin lumping the two into the same category. And um, it comes because of an ignorance of what really took place around the world in the 1830s and the 1840s. The second difference that um, I'm going to point out to you today, and I want to compare and contrast Camping's uh, method of deriving this date with that of the Millerites. And um, I hope you can see a contrast in these two 
thought processes also. Um, Harold Camping based his predictions on untested, unproven prophetic theory. And um, I don't know if any of you have studied what he wrote, and I wouldn't really recommend it. I'm going to share with you basically his six points that he makes. And um, this is even smaller yet, but um, I'll read it for you, okay? Um, basically, William uh, Harold Camping says, The crucifixion of Jesus was on the 14th day of the month of AD 33. That you've already, we're already outside of historical data, okay? Um, I'm not sure where he got that year because it's really commonly understood by Adventists and most Christians that he died two years before that. But nonetheless, um, this was Nisan 14, AD 33 of the biblical calendar and was April 1, AD 33 of our modern calendar. He moves on. He says, the church age officially began on the following Pentecost, which was May 22, AD 33. So you see, he's already gotten, you've already have to accept the fact that Jesus died on that year and, and on that day. And the church age, as he called it, began on May 22. I guess that's how he got the May 21, the, the end of that period. The church age ended and the 8,400 day great tribulation. You're familiar with 8,400 day great tribulation, aren't you? <laughs> Are you familiar with that time prophecy? Neither am I. Um, <laughs> The 8,400-day Great Tribulation began the day before Pentecost in 1988, which was May 21, 1988. Okay? So, are you familiar with that, with that uh, tribulation, which has been happening since 1988? Can you see all those clear fulfillments of prophecy since 1988? Most of us have lived during that time. This is the amazing thing. It's amazing to me people would actually believe this. Because this is during our lifetime. This 8,400-day Great Tribulation began, he says, on May 21, 1988. But yet there's nothing that I can see in historical data and that I can remember, because I was, I won't say how old I was in 1988, but I was well, well alive and, and able to remember what was going on. And um, listen, the, I haven't been aware of a great tribulation which began there and continued until now. The first 2,300 days, now we are familiar with the 2,300 day prophecy, aren't we? The first 2,300 day prophecy or days of the great tribulation began on May 21, 1988 and ended on September 7, 1994. Do you remember September 7, 1994? You remember what took place then? No, I don't either. I, don't have, I have no idea what took place on September uh, 7, 1994. The, the second part of the Great Tribulation, which consists of 6,100 days, that's 8,400 minus 2,300, began on September 7, 1994, and ends on May 21, 2011. What I'm trying to help you see here, I'm not trying to make fun of Brother Camping. I believe he's probably very sincere. What I'm trying to help you see here is he's got a, he's got a whole litany of, of propositions which are untested and unprovable in my estimation. You cannot show what really took place on those dates in 1988 or 1994. I don't believe. I don't believe there's anything queer, clear or unequivocal about those fulfillments that he says took place. Now this is very problematic because he's basing now, based upon those fulfillments that he says happened, you're supposed to believe clearly that now uh, May 21, 2011 is the end of this second period and the final five months of this earth's history begins in May 21 and ends in October 21. 
Do you see why I say that Camping based his predictions on untested, unproven, unverifiable theories about the interpretation of prophecy? You see what I'm talking about? Those dates simply, to my mind, and I think to most people's minds, are not conclusive. The ones in the past, I'm saying. Now, if you compare that with William Miller's understanding of prophecy... If you compare that, you'll see that William Miller and his associates base their predictions on what I consider to be the most verifiable and the most certifiable prophetic passage in all of apocalyptic prophecy. I believe that the message of 1844 was so important and God wanted there to be no question about its veracity that he gave us, as you, if you could consider it, he gave us down payments to show uh, that along the way we were using the right principles of interpretation. We had the right beginning dates. You know how when you're buying a house, you have to put down an earnest payment, right? And put something in escrow, perhaps. That's to say, because I put this money down, I'm going to put the rest of the money down. God did that in a way that he did not do in any other time prophecy, unless maybe you would consider the... Um, Perhaps the trumpets or some other prophecies were in series, time prophecies in series. But basically, this prophecy was given to us in a way that we can know for sure that we are using the right, the right principles of interpretation, we're using the right methods, we're using the right beginning date, and it's even widely accepted among Christianity. And so let's look really briefly at how William Miller and his associates understood that 2300-year time prophecy. You'll remember that there's only one way you can begin, you can find the beginning of the 2300-year prophecy, and that is by understanding the link, linguistic and other links between Daniel 8 and chapter 9, right? Daniel 8 and, chapter, and Daniel 9, you have the 2300 days, and then at the, at the, uh, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, says unto 2300 days, and then shall the what? sanctuary be cleansed. In other words, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, we have an ending event for the 2300-day prophecy. We have no demarcation for when it should begin. We have no beginning date. And so, in Daniel chapter 9, we find that when, when the angel comes back, when Gabriel comes back to explain to Daniel again this time prophecy, he, considers, he tells him to consider the vision, and he says, 70 weeks are cut off for your people. They're determined. They're separated. Cut off. If you have time cut off, it should be cut off of what? A larger period of time, right? And, um, and then he says, Know therefore that from the going of the commandment to restore, to rebuild Jerusalem shall be 70 weeks, right? Three score and two weeks and then so forth. So here we have basically a down payment on the 2300 day prophecy. Are you following me? Basically, if we can follow the, the first 70 weeks of the 2300-day prophecy, and if we find a, an accurate and clear fulfillment of that time prophecy, then we can be sure that the last 1810 years are also going to be fulfilled on time. 
And so if we look at the prophecies, and this isn't really my main topic today, so we're not going to look in great detail at, at uh, Daniel chapter 9, but you know the story, the, the, the 69 weeks, Messiah the Prince, right? Messiah means the anointed one. And Jesus came, sure enough, 483 years after uh, 457 B.C. in the year 27 A.D. We can find that genealogy. We look in the, the Gospel of Luke, and he gives all the rulers of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, Judea and also uh, Galilee and so forth. And 27 A.D. marked the end of the 69 weeks. The middle of the week, the, the Messiah would be cut off, not for himself, but for the people, right? And that's 31 A.D. in the, in the, in the spring of, 20, of 31 A.D. And then 34 A.D., we find the end of the 70-week prophecy. The, uh, the mercy of God towards the nation of Israel has reached its limit. They not only have rejected the message of the Messiah, but they have begun to crucify. They've not only crucified him, but they begin to kill his followers as well. You remember the stoning of Stephen, AD 34? And then the gospel went to the Gentiles. And what we're talking about here is not an interpretation that is unique to Adventism. In today's futuristic evangelical world, in the charismatic world, and many, many, many Christians in general today, when they talk about AD uh, uh, 457 and 27, they see things the same as we do. They may not see the last week the same, right? The gap theory puts it off into the future. And so that sort of is a, that simply comes from a misunderstanding of the tie between Daniel 8 and Daniel 9, right? You cannot do that if you see the 70 weeks as being part of 2300 days. And um, there are plenty of evidences to link those two chapters together, those two prophecies together. But what I'm trying to say to you is that there are certain principles of prophetic interpretation that William Miller knew he was right on. You cannot interpret, as a historicist, you cannot interpret the 70-week prophecy without using the year-day principle. And that was something all the, the Protestants agreed on, virtually without exception, the year-day principle. Why? Because it's very clear to them. If they didn't have the year-day principle in the, in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, they were going to have to be looking for their Messiah sometime back in 455. And Jesus didn't come in 455. He came in 27. He was anointed as the Messiah at his baptism in 27 AD. And so they understood the year-day principle is solid. We see that. And as you look at the fulfillment, that's a down payment. And if 34 AD is right, then all we have to do is add 1810 years and we come to 1844. Do you see why I, see, why I say that the 2300-day prophecy is the most certifiable and verifiable prophecy in apocalyptic writings? Do you see what I'm talking about? God did not want us to have to wonder. He did not want us to have to be equivocal or, or maybe this is true or maybe that's true. No. There's a huge contrast between what William Miller was preaching and with all due respect, what Brother Camping was preaching. You cannot compare these two. You cannot compare these two. They're completely different, different um, ball games altogether. They're completely different animals. And so I believe that, that the second reason that I would say they're different is because William Miller, uh, Harold Camping, based his, his uh, interpretations on some untested, unproven, and frankly quite unverifiable prophetic theories. Well, as William Miller and his associates were using the most verifiable prophecy to be found in apocalyptic writings. And so when we come down to 1844, I believe we have a lot to be certain about. We have a lot to be confident about. If not, we have to question 
a whole lot beyond 1844. We have to question a whole lot of scriptural authority and inspiration and, and, and well, we really, I, I, I have personally come to the conclusion from what I have studied about in the Bible and studied in prophecy, and this is something I'm sure each, each person has to come to their own conclusions, but I've come to the conclusion if 1844 is wrong, then Christianity is wrong. I really can't harmonize consistently the Bible. I would have to come to sort of a modern, a modern, uh, higher critical view of the scriptures as simply being sort of a, uh, a document, a story, but not the inspired written word of God with a message for our time. I think that's where I would end up if I did away with 1844. The third difference I want to point out is the great disappointment was, present, was predicted at the beginning of the seventh trumpet in, Dan, in Revelation chapters 9 through 11. And again, we don't have time to study in detail Revelations 9 through 11, but here we find that the, the time prophecies tie us, tie us uh, unavoidably to the time around 1840, 1844. And at this time, there's predicted a great disappointment. The great disappointment was specifically delineated in Bible prophecy. And some people are going to say, well, how do you know? I mean, without getting into a whole study of the, of the trumpets, etc. How do you know that uh, the great disappointment is bitter in the mouth and uh, sweet in the mouth and bitter in the belly experience? How do you know that's not talking about May 21, 2011? And I'll tell you my answer for that. If you look in Revelation chapter 10, if you look in Revelation chapter 10, you will discover that it is based upon this message, which is sweet in the mouth and bitter in the belly, is based upon what? It's based upon a, a little book which is open in the hand of the angel, right? And that little book we believe to be talking about the book that was shut, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. The book is now open, right? The book of prophecy, the book of Daniel. That's what the message of, of, uh, of October 22, 1844 was based upon. But I just shared with you the six points which brings Harold Camping down to May 21 or October 21. Is it based upon the book of Daniel? It's not. It's not. It cannot be describing the great disappointment of May 21, 2011. It cannot be. It's based upon the little book that's open in the hand of the angel, the book of Daniel. And so I would argue that the great disappointment of the Millerite movement was indeed predicted by the, uh, the word of God, by the book of Revelation. And it was that disappointment was to be based upon and under that message was to be based upon an understanding of the book of Daniel. That is not a characteristic of the message of Brother Camping. He does teach about Daniel, but that's not the message, that's not the basis for his message for May 21 or uh, October 21. Now, some people are going to ask me, okay, now you've just admitted that your, your religion, your belief system is built upon some people that have the wrong ideas, the wrong understanding of what would take place in October 22, 1844. Aren't you ashamed of being a Seventh-day Adventist and having that kind of a, a foundation for your faith? And I'm sure pretty, many of you have seen or heard some of the mockery that is made of those who put on their ascension robes, probably not true, and went out and, and waited for the second coming. And here's a little cartoon of the Millerites waiting for the end of the world to come. Many Christians look at Adventists as being followers of a, of a, deluded, of a deluded man. He was wrong after all. He was wrong. And so you're proud of William Miller because he was wrong? I'm not proud because he was wrong, but I want to just take you 
with a little bit of a, a little bit of a journey back about 2,000 years. If we go back to the time of Christ when he came, you remember he, cho he chose 12 disciples? And as Jesus went around, what was he preaching? He was healing, teaching, preaching, healing the sick. But what was his message? The kingdom of God is at hand. And let me ask you a question. In the minds of the Israelites at that time, the Jews of his day, what did it mean when he said the kingdom of God is at hand? The Messiah is here. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to overthrow the Romans. And Israel is going to be the center of the world and rule the world. That's what it meant, right? Now, then he took his disciples. He chose 12 disciples. And he sent them out preaching. And what were they preaching? They were preaching the same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. And let me just ask you a question. How many of the 12 disciples understood what the kingdom of God really meant? As I recall, the week before the crucifixion, they were still arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. That is to say, they believed when they were preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, the Messiah was here to establish an earthly kingdom and a reign on David's throne and overthrow the Romans. That's what they understood when they were preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were excited because they were going to be a part of this earthly power. You remember, they had organized this movement after Jesus fed the 5,000. They wanted to have him coronated king right then. And they were disappointed when he sent them off in a boat and told them to paddle across the lake. And they were devastated because they thought Jesus was coming as the, as the king. And then on that Palm Sunday when he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that's the way kings enter Jerusalem, right? And the people are waving their palm branches as they would a king coming to the throne. They're throwing down their coats and having the donkey walk across it. They were crying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the disciples were ecstatic because they knew now Jesus was accepting the adulation, the praise. He was accepting his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And now they're on the verge of the kingdom. They were about to be ushered in to what the hopes and the dreams of their life. They were at the center of, they were going to be near, to the, near the, the, the nerve center of this new powerful kingdom to rule over the world. And then you know what took place. As Jesus was accosted in the garden of Gethsemane, the disciples were waiting for him to once again disappear and simply melt out of the, the midst of his captors, right? But he didn't. They watched him being taken to the judgment hall. They watched him being beaten. They watched him carrying the cross. And at every moment they knew he was going to flash through his divinity and vanquish the Romans and set up his kingdom. And instead, the impossible happened. They've spent the last three and a half years preaching, teaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus died. You want to talk about devastation. The disciples' whole world was, was gone. You want to talk about disappointment. They put their reputation, their lives, their careers, everything at stake on Jesus. And Jesus died. The great disappointment which took place on that day was probably the greatest disappointment in the history of this world of any time of God's believers. In fact, on Sunday, even after there were rumors swirling about Jesus appearing to Mary and so forth, you remember on, on Sunday there were two disciples that were stumbling through their tears on the road to Emmaus. And they're rehearsing the events. And without hope in their voices, 
They were saying, but we had hoped, we thought this was the Messiah. We thought this was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You'll remember that Jesus appeared among them. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he opened the scriptures and expounded, explained to them the things concerning himself. And from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus showed that while they had had the right timing for preaching the kingdom of God, they had had the wrong event. They had had the right timing. They had misunderstood the event. And God had allowed that. He allowed it because he wanted the attention of the world to be drawn in a way to what was happening at Jerusalem that could have been drawn in no other way. God did not cause that misunderstanding, but he allowed it in spite of his trying to teach his people what was really going to happen in Jerusalem on that day. The disciples were preaching the correct time while they were preaching the wrong event. So therefore, I see no reason to be ashamed of the disappointment of 1844. I see no reason to be ashamed of being an Adventist any more than I'm ashamed of being a Christian. I'm not ashamed of the disappointment that took place on the cross in, in, in 31 AD. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. The cross of Christ is my glory and my joy. It's not my shame. And I'm not ashamed of what took place on October 22, 1844, because I believe that then that, that event points us to Jesus, Jesus who is our high priest, Jesus who is our intercessor. It points us to the marriage of the bride, us with the lamb, him. It, mo- it points us to a love relationship that must be consummated between us and Jesus. It points us to an experience of cleansing, which, which, is, which is a beautiful experience. It, it, it points us to the experience of righteousness by faith. In hindsight, as we look at what took place in 1844, we have no no reason to be ashamed, brothers and sisters. I'm not ashamed of being an Adventist any more than I'm being ashamed of a Christian. Yes, there may have been a disappointment. Yes, there may have been a preaching of the right time at the wrong event, but God allowed that for a reason. And according to Revelation chapter 10, according to Revelation chapter 10, we ought not to be ashamed, even though there may be counterfeits such as May 21, muddying the waters and making us look ridiculous. The Bible is very clear in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 11. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Don't be ashamed of our prophetic message. Our job is to tell the world that Jesus is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and that he's coming again. Don't allow the counterfeit to obscure the true. It's time to give the message loud and clear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we are thankful that you've given to us a more sure word of prophecy. As we consider the deceptions of the devil that are rampant today, as we see his artful, his artful uh, mastery in making deception so attractive and making the truth look ridiculous, Lord, help us never to be ashamed of the truth. Help us to study our Bibles. Help us to study the word of prophecy, to have a clear understanding, a biblical basis for what we believe. And Lord, help us to fulfill that last verse of Revelation chapter 10 and prophesy again around the world to tell them 
that you are doing the final work of ministry and you're soon to come. Lord, please be with us that we might give that message loudly and clearly as it's been predicted in Revelation 14. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.